So we're going to be reading Judges 10, verses 6, all the way to 11, verse 11, and then verses 29 to 40 in chapter 11, and then that's what we'll, I'll fill in the blanks as needed. So let's read that. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, and the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign, so the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come, and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Minith, 
20 cities and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, and I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Okay. So we've been, I've been warning you it's getting worse, and it's going to continue to get worse until the end of the book. So let me begin with the story of an immigrant man named Jim. A man named Jim moves to Chicago uh, in 1895 from Italy. And uh, as he grows, he realizes he's got a lot of ambition. He loves to, uh, he likes food, and he's very sociable, so he opens a restaurant. And this restaurant becomes very popular. And it becomes so popular, he, asks, he ends up opening other clubs throughout Chicago in the early 20th century. And as he starts to become more wealthy, he realizes, you know, um, he really wants to be a part of the upper crust. He's an immigrant, so he's not quite accepted. So he'd like to break through and become, to, to run in circles of, the, of the, the white collar, the rich, the old money, you know, those folks. So he starts doing what he thinks is best to do to get himself in that circle. So he starts wearing uh, white silk sh- suits. He maybe goes over the top. You know, anybody who wants friends or wants something so bad sometimes goes over the top. And Jim is guilty of that. He wears suits that are so thin, apparently you could see his underwear through the silk suits. He, um, he, he's so used to having nothing that now that he has money, he wears diamonds everywhere. He has diamonds on every finger, suspenders, diamonds, belt, diamonds, walking stick, diamonds, garters that held up his socks, we don't do that anymore, diamonds. So he's covered Becomes, and he drives around in something called an arrow, if you know your old cars. It's a beautiful old car in the, in the turn of the century. And has a chauffeur. He does all this, and he starts inviting. He pays reporters and reviewers to come to his restaurant and talk it up in the media. And they do. And it, it begins to attract celebrities. So celebrities of the day are showing up. The, the lawyer Clarence Darrow is there. Enrico Caruso, if you know opera, he's there. The Barrymores, if you know the actors, you know Mr. Potter from... Uh, uh, it's Wonderful Life. Uh, he, well, younger by that time. Uh, he's showing up. So celebrities are coming. And Jim starts to think, hey, he's finally breaking through. The only thing he doesn't realize, however, is that everybody who's coming is laughing at him behind his back. That these wealthy people are going, and they're only going because they want to see how the other half live. They call it slumming it. You know, he wants to go see how this, this peasant from Italy, you know, how he's, he's trying his best to break through. And they kind of laugh at him behind his back. He doesn't know that. Now, here's the thing you need to know about Jim. Here's a picture of him. He was Diamond Jim Colosimo, a mobster. 
And those restaurants were fronts for brothels. And Jim Colosimo, Big Jim, he ends up being killed, likely at the behest of, of two guys, John, Johnny Torrio, if you know your mobster history, and Al Capone, who became eventually the leader of the Chicago mob. Now, Jim Colosimo is doing exactly what mobsters throughout history have always done, and you see it actually played out in the movies, like in The Godfather as well. If you don't know, I've got a, I've got a I don't want to say a love for organized crime, but <laughs> it's not that. But I, but I enjoy researching it, let's just say. So you, what you, one of the things you see throughout these guys is they start out a certain way because they often have to. They're born into this sort of situation. I mean, our friends here at Youth Unlimited are seeing kids born into tough situations, and they make do. But what these men want more than anything is to belong. They want to eventually break through. They want to be part of something, and they try to get through. You see it in The Godfather. You see it in The Sopranos. You see it in these movies all the time. But the moment they break through and they join a country club, they find the guys just want to talk to them about their mafia stuff, and they're never quite accepted. But that is their heart's desire. Now, I open this with this story because Jephthah is a mob leader. Jephthah is a man who has been outcast, kicked out of his home. He is an out, he's, uh, he's rejected and booted away. He's illegitimate. And so he surrounds himself with what they call worthless fellows, which means empty. It's the word empty in Hebrew. So he surrounds himself with a, a band of thugs, and he becomes a gang leader, which is why they go looking for him to help get them out of a jam, because he's tough. He can fight. And the whole story revolves around him wanting to go home. He wants to belong. And that's something maybe you don't see often because we get so distracted by the vow. And the vow itself is a byproduct of his not having a place, being displaced in the world and looking for a home. And so we're going to try to look at that in more detail because the story is all about this idea. And as the whole book of Judges, it's about idols. It's about those things that we use instead of Christ to get us what only Christ can get us. He's looking for a place to belong. He's looking for acceptance. But he's looking, uh, quote that old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Right? And he's trying. And this is what idols are. Idols are the things we look to instead of Christ to give us what only Christ can give us. And we're going to see in this story the power of them. We're going to see what they demand of us, what they make us become, and then ultimately, thankfully, how to escape them. Okay? And we're going to look at this through the lens of Jephthah and the Gileadites, Israelites. So let's do that. First one is what they demand. So in, in the book of Judges, the cycle has restarted. Remember, we had the cycle that would look like this uh, throughout the book. Israel sins. As a result of their sin, God allows them to get what they want, which is usually a foreign oppressor comes and dominates Israel. They then cry out over a period of time for relief. God then hears them by grace, sends a judge. The judge delivers them, they have a moment of peace, and then they fall back into sin. And this happens with every single, all the 12 judges, the cycle happens over and over and over. So it's happening here. But one of the interesting things you see happening is some of the components change a little bit throughout the book. And one of them that you see changing mostly here is God has been slower to answer as the judges have come along. He answered very quickly with Othniel and Ehud, but with Barak and Deborah, you'll notice, God doesn't actually call anybody. Deborah does it through and on behalf of God. Gideon, before Gideon is called, who comes? A prophet. So he delays his answer. Now he's saying, I'm not going to answer you at all anymore. I'm sick of it. I'm done enough, which must be terrifying, a thing to hear, that God was no longer going to rescue you. So he's very slow to reply. And the reason is this. See, this is as close as Israel gets to repentance in the entire book. 
They get pretty close. And some people may say, but look, they repent. They know they're following idols, but they're not. And this is why. Well, we know that they're not because God says, no, thank you. It's if God would, can't resist a repentant heart, but he resists this, which indicates it's not repentance. And the reason you can see it is this. Hebrew word for repentance is the word shuv, which means to not just turn away from a sin, but towards God. And what you see here in spades is a, is a people like us who want desperately relief from our circumstances, but we don't want God. And so they turn away from it. They'll say, fine, we'll do whatever you want. You notice what they say? Just, God, just be quiet. Just give us, we'll do whatever you say. Just save us now. That mentality indicates it is not repentance. They don't want God. They want his stuff. It's like marrying somebody for their money. I don't love you. I want what you can give me. And God says, I've had enough of it. But of course, he grows impatient with their misery. He can't stand. He's, this is the tension of scripture. I'll never let you go. But I'm going to let you go if you don't hold on. But I'm going to let you go. I'm never going to let you go. And God says, I'm not going to answer you. But then he watches and says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Remember? That's from uh, Hosea. How can I give you up? And this is what we're seeing right here. So he's grown, impa- he's grown impatient with their suffering. And here's the other thing. If you're a person who's come to the church, come to Christianity in search of circumstantial changes, you're going to get very frustrated with this God because his primary interest is not removing you from circumstances, but from these idols that are far deeper oftentimes. Your, your lack of success, your lack of stability, your poor relationships, your poor habits with money are often symptoms of a deeper idol underneath that are causing that. And oftentimes he, he seeks to root out that and, when this, and you know you haven't come to Christ in the right way, and most of us don't, so let's be humble. When you come, and after a while you say, he didn't come through. I went to church, I did everything, I tithed, I showed up, I served, my life hasn't changed. Which tells me right away, you came for his money, not for him. Right? And so Israel has done this. But when they come to, this is what's fascinating. Israel here is desperate. So they come to, God, to, to Jephthah looking for help. Because God has said, no, thank you. And there's a parallel. They say something that you haven't heard since the very first verse of the entire book. At the very first verse, they come after Joshua into the promised land. And they say to God, they inquire, in fact, we can put up on the screen. They inquire of God, of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now is the first time you're hearing that since. But now look what happens. And the people of the leaders said to one another, who is it? They've become, as Judges has moved on, like our culture, self-referencing. It's no longer God who should do it, but hey, let's, let's use our own collective wisdom to decide what the plan is. And that decay in their faith. See, they used to be people who would go to God for direction. Now they're looking at each other. Right? So, they've, so we see a deterioration there. And the best they can come up with is going to a gang leader to help them. So, they do that. They go to him and Here's even more interesting. Look how desperate Israel is. Look at how the idol has got them. They go to to Jephthah and they say, hey, will you come and be a leader for us? It's the word leader that is over the military, meaning we've got a war coming. We need somebody who can lead this war. Jephthah then does what we would probably love to do. You didn't want me before. Now you do, eh, tough guys? He's in the driver's seat, right? So he says, you didn't want me before. Why do you come to me now? So in response to his cool reception about being offered the leadership of the army, they then say, fine, come and be leader, the head over all the inhabitants. Just be our king. Because you see, they're so desperate for relief from the Ammonites that they'll give anything to anyone who promises relief. 
And the idol, in this case, is Jephthah, and he has his own idols we're going to see in a minute. And an idol is doing exactly what idols do. They'll demand everything from you. They'll just drain you bit by bit. And let's now, let me use another organized crime metaphor here. You see it in the movies, but it's also a practical thing that organized criminals do in the cities where they are. Here's an example. And they do a lot of things, but here's one example of how they will drain and suck dry their target. So a bunch of mobsters, soldiers, they call them the, the lowlifes, the guys who just go out and do all the work, they will start eating at a restaurant. And they'll eat at this restaurant constantly, but they won't pay their bill. And they'll just run up a tab. Eventually, the tab gets to be thousands and thousands and thousands. So the owner of the restaurant turns to the, the capo, the guy who's leading this group, and says, listen, I hate to say it, but I'm going to go under here. They're, they're drinking me, eating me out of house and home. I need them to start paying their tabs. So the capo says, all right, you know what? What am I going to do? Fine, I'll come in. I'll become, a, I'll become a partner with you. I'll buy into the restaurant because they'll never, they, they'll pay their tabs if they know I'm the owner. So now the mafia, the mobster owns the business, partly. But he's off the books usually. He's too smart to put his name on it entirely. But he does make himself the beneficiary of the insurance. And he comes in, but nothing changes. The guys don't pay their bill. And now what he has is a mob that is now taking the credit for the restaurant owner to buy ovens, stoves, cases of liquor. And instead of bringing them to the restaurant, they take them out on the road and they sell them out of the back of the restaurant. So the, the business owner, whose only name is on the business, his credit is getting skyrocketed, right? He's maxed out everywhere. All the money is being filtered into the mafia, and then when he can not get one more penny out of that restaurant, they burn it to the ground, and he collects the insurance. The business owner is left with nothing. Because he's so desperate for relief, he'll grab onto anything, even something that means his harm, to help him. And of course, the idol, in this case, Jephthah, says, fine, I'll come, but I'm not just going to lead the army. I want it all. I want to lead everything. And we do it. And we see this thing played over time and again when you say, oh, I'm going I'm to be a, a social media buff. I, I, I'm feeding off those likes. My life will be on that. Or you see it more practically in the world when, oh my goodness, in the beginning of the 20th century, when, when you had to take a wheelbarrow of money to buy a loaf of bread in the Weimar Republic in Germany after the First World War, and Hitler comes and says, I'll make it better. I'll just tell them to stick it. I'm not going to pay any more to any more, anything to the Allies. Why do you think 80 million Germans voted for Hitler? He offered them something that they desperately wanted, and they saw no one else would give it to them. And we do it every day, every, all of us, in much more subtle ways. And so what do they demand? Everything. Now, what do they make us in turn? So here we're going to turn and look, what do we become? We, we're going to look a little bit at Jephthah himself. So, he has different, a different idol. See, Jephthah, he is what happens. When you look at Jephthah, you begin to see what happens to us individually when we allow the idol to drive us, when that becomes our, when it consumes us. And we see his slow decay in three interactions in this story. I didn't read all of it, because I'll still have to fill in some blanks. So he has interactions with three different groups of people. The people of Israel, of Gilead, who ask him to be king. The king of Ammon, who he's going to have a war with and then with his daughter. Okay, three interactions. And now watch the slow decay of how this idol in him saps him of, his, of everything. So, first the people. He's a mighty warrior, but he's, comes from this, he's a prostitute's son, so he's obviously an outcast. He's rejected, he's disinherited, he's bitter, very bitter. So when they then come to him and say, help us, of course it must have felt good, right? 
But then something so clear but so subtle in the wording, when they ask him to come, here's what he says. If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. See what he wants? If you bring me home. He doesn't say, yes, I'll do it. He says, if you bring me home. And that language is not accidental. He's yearning for home. He wants to get back what he lost. And he says, That's, this is the condition. I'll do whatever you want, but you've got to bring me home. He's got to recapture it. Now, this desire, because that is his ultimate goal, and you're going to see how it plays out. It's not just this one comment. It happens throughout his story. Because his primary desire is to belong again, to have a home, to be somewhere, that will consume him, and everything will be sacrificed on the altar of that desire. Anything that threatens to say, no, you're not going to have home, you're not going to belong again, he will put it to death if he has to, because that's what idols do. It makes you think everything is subservient to that one thing you want. So, when he does this with them, oh, I don't know where I'm at now. Bring me home. So after this, now he must win, okay? The condition of him going home, of having what he wants, is victory. So now when he turns to face the king of Ammon, the Ammonites, he has to win. Because if he doesn't, he's not going to be home. That existential longing, that thing he's been seeking, is not going to happen. So he has to win. Now he faces the king of Ammon. Now what you don't hear, and I didn't read it because it's pretty lengthy, is he has a dialogue in letters back and forth with the king, trying to, decide, to say, hey, why are you coming to fight Israel? We, we haven't done anything wrong, and it's negotiation a little. Um, but there's something interesting that happens in it. Now, many, some of you may have been alive, I don't know. In 1941, on December 8th, President Roosevelt in the States had this to say. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. You may, if you're old enough to remember that actually happening, well done. It was 80-something years, 82 years ago, almost. But when he says it, you know, he uses language. I bring this up not because Pearl Harbor is my primary concern, but the language. What he does here is he uses the wording that every statesman uses. He says it's America versus Japan and vice versa. What he doesn't do is get personal. But when Jephthah interacts with the king, just use a couple of, of verses, 11, 12, and 27. Look what he does. What do you have against me? That you have come to me to fight against my land. Right? It's personal. It's not about the empire of this or whatever. And after he explains that he's in the right and they shouldn't be having this war of aggression against Israel, he says after, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. See what he's done. This is not a geopolitical conflict to Jephthah. It's a personal one. He has to win this. And therefore, any assault on what he needs, which is the victory, is an assault on him. And so it's no longer Israel versus Ammon. It's Jephthah versus the king of Ammon. He must win. See how personal it's become. Jephthah, and this is where... You can talk in your community groups this week, but here's where scholars, almost, not almost unanimously, we often hear that Jephthah's vow to sacrifice his, his daughter is a rash vow. I believe it is rash, but I think it's much more. I think it's actually manipulation. I think it's not nearly as off the cuff. I think it's a calculated vow to do something. And I'm not alone, and I'll, use, I'll sustain that in a minute. But this is why community groups are fine. You can disagree with me and have fights. But listen... In verse 27, he says this. 
He's talked to the king, right? He's talked to the king, uh, and he's going back and forth. Jephthah has shown no signs of piety, no signs of faith, no signs of anything pretty typical of Israel at this point. And then all of a sudden, he inserts God's name into the story, and he changes from the personal I versus you to Israel versus Ammon, when he says, the Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Now, why does he switch tenses from the personal tense to the impersonal, now it's nations fighting? It's probably, scholars say, because what he's doing is he knows he really doesn't have a personal covenant with God, but God is on the hook if he's a good pagan God, like the other gods that we're seeing throughout the book of Judges. He owes it to Israel to save them. So I'm going to make sure that I'm not going to lose, but I'm going to now tie in this Hebrew God, and I'm going to say, hey, Yahweh, he owes this to the people of Israel. God, if you don't come through, this is your people. So is he manipulating God and saying, now I'm using, now I'm going to use the name because it's convenient to me to get this victory. You can disagree, but we're going to keep going because there's more coming. So God, of course, does this. He, he mercifully does give Israel that what he, what he tend, tend to give. But now let me move on. So that's his interaction with the people of Israel, the people of the king of Ammon. Now he works, let's see this trend of selfishness, this insular, me, me idea, now to his daughter. So first let me say this, it has to be said. If he was a good law-abiding and knowing Jew, he would have known better than to make any vow like this. Because the law is very clear. Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So don't make a covenant with me and says, if then. I don't, that's that's the pagan way, right? That's how you, it's foxhole Christianity, right? It's foxhole Christianity that says, I'm in dire straits, so I'll do anything. I'll go to church every day, just get me out of this jam, you know? That sort of a mentality. Is it rash? Yeah. But is it manipulative? Yeah, of course it is. You're trying to manipulate God right? I'll give you something as if God needs that, right? And so he, he should have known better that God cannot be and should not be approached the way other pagan gods is. But as we've seen throughout the book of Judges, this is the way Israel increasingly relates to the God of the Bible is as other gods. But then it goes further in, Gen- in Deuteronomy 18. It also says very plainly, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. So let's be clear about this. Skeptic Christian doesn't matter ancient Jew, modern, secular, humanist, it doesn't matter. Everyone who reads this is supposed to be shocked. Ancients would have read this and been shocked by it. Human sacrifice was not prevalent, even if it happened, in any culture in the ancient Near East at this time. It may have happened, but it wasn't common like it was, for instance, in in the religious uh, worlds of the Aztecs, where it was part of the, the ritual. So this is meant to shock you. So if you're a skeptic who says, oh, I'm you Christians, how could you believe this? Hold your horses. Just understand, if you're shocked by it, you're not unique. It's not because you have such refined sensitivities and you're so human, humane and the ancients weren't. This is supposed to shock you, right? It's meant to make, you're supposed to say, hold on, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? So when he comes and he makes this, this vow, let's move now to what he says when he sees her. This is fascinating to me. As soon as he sees her, here's what he says. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. What he doesn't say is, I'm so sorry. I repent. 
I can't believe I'm such an idiot, whatever. Think of, fill in the blanks. The concern is not what is going to be done to her, but how it affects him. You're bringing me low, girl. You brought me down. Why'd you come out first? I was hoping the dog would come out. Instead, it's you. His concern for himself is deafening here. There's no repentance here. None. And all of these little bits, you're beginning to see a man who is so driven by something that it forces him to put anything on the altar of it. And before we become too hard on Jephthah, and you should be because this is wrong entirely, let's not get too high and mighty because you and I sacrifice our children every day. Every time we are distracted by our phones, we're putting a little etch in them, a little cut. There's some, every time we put something above our family and our children, we're saying, this is more valuable to me than that. And so here's the, here's the part where I would even be even maybe just challenge us all a little. That might be worse than putting a knife in them because at least the knife will end them immediately. This will beggar them for generations to come of neglect and of hatred and of anger and of bitterness. And this is why we just saw Gideon and his son Abimelech wreak havoc because he was such a poor father. And now we're seeing another one. So when you then look back at how great Caleb was to Aksa, remember that in chapter 1 and 2 with Othniel? You see, oh my goodness, look where the family has become. And because the family is eroded, the culture is eroding. And the church, the people of God, are eroding. And why doesn't he take back the vow? Why doesn't he take it back? Everybody in Israel is taking back vows. Everybody. It's the, it's the coolest thing to do, right? And he doesn't. And Abraham Kuravilla, prof from Dallas Theological Seminary, I think hits it like most scholars do on the head, to his canonized mind, benefits for the future obtained by, the manipulating, by manipulating the deity outweigh his grief for the present caused by sacrificing his daughter. Here's the problem. He believes he won that war because he sacrificed his daughter. And if that's the case, he can't give it up now. If I go back on the vow, I never get home. I'll never belong. So I can't lose this war. Yes, it sucks. I'm going to have to give up this. I'm going to have to be a hard moment. But he doesn't give up the vow. He has two months to do it because she's away. Two months. And he doesn't. So this is not... We, we, people can't just say it's a rash vow. Let's not let him off the hook. A rash vow can be undone rashly. I do it all the time. All the time. He doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is he can't lose this war. If I don't fulfill this vow, maybe I don't get what he just gave me, which is I get to go home. I get to belong again. So, with that, how do we get rid of it? How do we escape these, how do we escape these idols that demand everything from us? Um, first, it's Jesus. All the judges point to Christ. And even in, the, even in their misery and in their sin, you see how brightly Christ shines in, in comparison. And they all point us to it. Because all of us want cheers. If you're old enough to remember the show Cheers, you want to go where everybody knows your name. That's all you want. You want to be at a place where, where you can be accepted as you are. Right? And hopefully brought, made to be better. But you want to be at a place where you belong you want to be accepted. You want to be, and Jesus shows up eventually as this God who will come and say, I will accept you as you are. I won't keep you as you are, but I will accept you as you are. And listen, aren't you all tired of it? Aren't you all just tired of sinning? Aren't we all just tired of looking for belonging in our social media likes and when they don't come through, you're at rack of anxiety or your texts or your money or your health? My goodness, your health is going to fail. And we're all tired of it. And Christ comes. Let me show you now just a few areas of where Christ pops up here. First, 
he answers our desperate cry. Jephthah answers the cry of Israel that they needed to be saved, but he does it out of selfish motives for himself. Christ will come and answer your deepest cry to belong at his own cost. Okay? So that, in that way, he's a contrast to Jephthah, and Jephthah helps us see Christ more clearly. Christ, listen, he's an outcast. The reason Jephthah can save Israel is precisely because he's an outcast. See, God is not an idiot. He knows that at this moment in history, he needs somebody who is driven. Because there's not a faithful man, apparently, not many anyway, to be found in all of Israel. The very reason that Jephthah could persevere, could fight, could kick people around, and could be called on is because he was rejected. It's a, remember that old uh, Johnny Cash song, Boy Named Sue? Remember, you remember that song? The guy names his kid Sue, and he says, he finally meets him and says, I did that because I knew you'd have to get tough or die. So I named you Sue. Now, I'm not saying God gave this, does this, but God permits Jephthah, in his, in his permissive will, permits Jephthah to have a tough, hard, miserable life so that when it's needed, he can then use him to save Israel and to point to Christ. And so when Christ then shows up, Christ doesn't save you in spite of his rejection. He saves you through it. And because he's rejected, he can save you. Look at the beauty of it, that at your very worst, when you are literally nailing God to the cross, he saves you. He takes your very worst moment. It's because he was an outcast that he can save you. And this points, Jephthah in that way, points as a, as a shadow savior to the real savior. He gives everything to save. It's wrong what Jephthah does. But one thing he understands is, if I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to be home again, it's going to cost. It's going to cost me something. He does it wrong. And this is where you see the effects of sin that turn even our best intentions often into terrible, terrible things. But because it shows us what Christ does, which is he knows to be saved will require that he dies. It will require sacrifice. It doesn't come for free. And in that way, he points us to Christ. And in fact, he shows us that just like Jephthah would withhold nothing, I'll give anything to get home again. Christ says the opposite, which is more beautiful, and says, I will give everything to get you home again. Not for himself, but for your sake. And so he points again to Christ. Lastly, though I could say, keep going, it's the desire. Here's what's interesting about the book of Judges. They have, and the books of Kings, Samuel and Kings. You have this history of Israel that goes for uh, roughly 500 years of kingship, and all the kings stink. The best you can come up with is David, which is, we covered Samuel, you know. And what the point is that God is saying is, can't you see, human kings cannot save you. And the history of kingship is to show you the failure of human kings. But despite the fact that they have a history of failed kings, they still yearn for a king. You and I have no reason to believe a prime minister will ever be better than the last one. They won't. I mean, if you show me evidence to show it's ever, we've ever gotten that right in human history. Well, we've never. And yet, despite the fact of generations and millennia of human kings, the failure of human kings, you still yearn for a king. And this is because God is in it, pointing and saying, keep this hope, because there is a king out there who will be right. And this desire for kings grows and grows, and it kindles a deeper yearning. Here's the irony. The worse your kings are because of God's grace, the more you yearn for a good one. And you seek for him. You hold your kings to account. And when they keep failing, rather than look for a better one next time, find the one that's here and died for you already. This is why serving causes will never 
satisfy you. You can serve the economic, you, you save, save the universe and the environment. You can save, work on human trafficking, all very important things. But if that is your idol, it will demand everything and you'll be unsatisfied. You're going to realize you don't stop human trafficking by your efforts. You're going to realize nobody cares and they stop funding you. And you're going to say, why doesn't the world care? And you're going to become bitter, you become frustrated. If you serve an idol other than God, the only possible hope for you actually there's no hope. You're going to end in some form of Jephthah. Some way you'll be sapped of everything. May not be, hopefully, as severe as what Jephthah is, but you'll be drained. The only king worth serving is the one who came and demands everything from you because he will. He'll say, your life is, a, you know, your life is what I demand. But he can actually deliver on the promises he offers. No one else can. No other idol will. They'll all fall. Your children will leave you or die. One person in this room will outlive everybody else. How's that for grim? Right? One of you will bury the rest of us. The only hope we have is in a savior and an idol that will give us everything we want and yet do it at his expense and not ours. And there's never been one except for Christ who's ever said he could do it. And he delivers. That's the gospel. That's where we see him in Jephthah. There's a lot of meat left on the bone of this passage, but that's where we'll end for now. Let's pray.